Lord, I have loved the habitation of thine house and the place where thine honor dwelleth. That marvelous and rather comforting statement of Psalm 26, verse 8, challenges us even tonight to appreciate the greatness with which we've been blessed to be able to assemble like this and to do so without fear of being harmed, harassed, molested by those authorities who would wish us otherwise. So it is tonight we can open the Word of God with freedom, with liberty, and feel free to use those things taught to direct, to lead, and to push our lives in the direction that God would have it to go. It was mentioned there in the announcements just a few moments ago about our directories. We each should express a degree of appreciation, it would seem, to our eldership for uh, taking the initiative to help supply us with them. And as far as if, if a family has not received or picked yours up, I think the elders have those available in the office. So you might want to just let uh, Dennis or Roger or Eddie know, and I'm sure they'd be happy to, to get one of those for you. But again, we certainly uh, we hope that they'll be useful for us as a congregation to know one another's name, addresses, and things like that so that uh, when the time approaches that we need to contact someone or perhaps just a desire to let someone know we're thinking of them, then that should be a useful tool to help us do that. It was noted a moment ago in our reading from Ruth 1, verse number 20, that that would be the setting of the lesson this evening, and you might note the title, How Mara Was Not Mara, which may seem a bit of an unusual title, but nonetheless it would seem one from the book that's very useful for us as we consider lessons from it that you and I can use even till this day. And perhaps it would be fair to note some introductory thoughts as to what brings us to the notion of that title and also to move us in the direction of how we can use some of those lessons and applications to help us so wonderful today. As you can see, a play on words is being used in that title. And as we'll see in a moment, that play on words is very specific and rather detailed. But it's also very meaningful. It would be my hope that that'll help us remember some of the ideas behind the lesson how that Mara was not Mara. But perhaps it certainly would be interesting to notice that the book of Ruth has a very well-known character within it. Probably when we first think of the book of Ruth, we think of Ruth. But there were other characters in that book besides just her. And in fact, this evening, we'll cast the spotlight on one of the other characters in that book. In fact, as Brother Harold made notice in the reading, Naomi is another rather notable person who steps across the biblical stage in that book, and it is her life that in many ways we shall concentrate on in the lesson this evening. Ruth is a very charming little book. It only consists of four chapters, but yet how many times throughout the ages has it been read and brings a smile to one's face, appreciative of the marvelous matter that's presented, the touching and very enduring story that's revealed, and notice it isn't just a make-believe story. This actually occurred. There were characters, and in their action, and in the way that they conducted themselves, so many things that we could still learn and apply to our lives today. When we think about those matters, might I direct your attention then to the setting of the book? For it seems that that plays such an interesting role as we contemplate the lessons to be extracted from it. Ruth is in many ways a very high mark in this section or era of Old Testament history. In fact, if I might direct your attention to just a few of the thoughts concerning that idea. In the opening 12 letters, or rather the 12 opening words of verse number 1, we find the stage in which this book is set. It's in the time of the Judges. 
And immediately that brings to our mind the scene of the book of Judges. The preceding book to this one in the Old Testament. That, after all, was a period of time very well known for a number of things, many of which were not so good. We well recognize periods of ungodliness, periods of great selfishness, times of great oppression and hardship when God's people, in fact, directly turned their back upon Him, began to turn to the various idols and follow the other things the people of that era and that part of the world had set before them. And yet God would raise up a deliverer who, in fact, would then strive to release God's people from the bondage and oppression. However, notice what happened. It was much like a roller coaster ride through the book of Judges. And when God's people suffered the oppression, the hardship, and the difficulty, then they recognized the troublesome times they were in and turned again to the God of heaven following that deliverer. But might we notice the book of Judges so often was a tale of ungodliness, a tale of selfishness. Wasn't it said in Judges 17, 6, there was no king in Israel for every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That same statement is found in Judges 21, verse 25 as well, reminding us that when folks begin to do what's right in their own eyes, you are in a position of anarchy, a position of chaos, pandemonium spiritually. And that's in many ways what the latter chapters in Judges details. But notice what follows this. Following the book of Ruth, we find the time of the kings. Sure enough, in 1 Samuel, the 8th chapter, the people there near the close of Samuel's life demanded a king. Give us a king, they claimed, that we may be like the nations round about us. They wanted a king to fight their battles for them, to lead them in to victory, if you please. However, we also well remember that those kings, Saul being first, David following him in particular, times of bloodshed, warfare, difficulty on a number of occasions, and in the days that followed, given the ungodly kings that ruled Israel and many in cases Judah as well, God's people suffered mightily. Might we thus notice, on the one hand was the period of judges that in many ways wasn't so notably positive, and then in the period of the kings, again, in many ways, not as positive as one might like. Nestled right between is the book of Ruth. A very high mark in terms of poetic beauty. A lovely story in which love and the high praise of character is set forth. We see that familial love between Naomi and Ruth. Later between Boaz and Ruth. And the greatness of the lineage that came forth from the bowels of those two. It's, in fact, an amazing, charming story. Tonight, as we give some consideration to this book of Ruth, I would ask you now to notice with me again that verse number 20 of chapter number 1. And as we do that, let's somewhat remind ourselves of the stage, the principal movement through the book, and use that to indelibly imprint in our mind what shall be the thrust of Ruth chapter 1, verse number 20. In fact, as the curtain opens, if you will, and the drama of the book of Ruth begins, we find a gentleman named Elimelech. He and his wife Naomi dwelt in none other than that city of Bethlehem. We well remember what later would occur when such majesty and might and power as the Christ child was born on the, in that place in Matthew chapter 2 as well as Luke chapter 2. But as we contemplate and remark on this occasion, things initially were not as well for Naomi and Elimelech. 
we immediately appreciate that their two sons as well, Malin and Kalian, were such that there was famine in that land. And the husband, as well as others, chose to move toward Moab, a place where the famine was not as great. Therein they could find sustenance and the necessary matters to persevere. We immediately notice in the first few verses, when they did come to Moab, notice what is told to us quickly in verse 3. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. Here was Elimelech passed away in this foreign place. But notice what else took place. We quickly appreciate that she was left and her two sons. But verse 4 says they took them wives. And their names are provided to us later in the book. One of them was named Orpah. The other was named Ruth. Moabite women. As they became parts of that family in rather quick order in verse number 5, we notice the two sons also passed away. We now have left these three women. We have Ruth, we have Orpah, and we have Naomi. The three men had now left the earthly scenes of this life. And what's more, in that particular age and time, when certainly things tended to be more directed to the male aspect in society, what were these women to do? We notice that Naomi makes a decision. She intends to proceed back to Bethlehem, for she has received word that the famine that was so grievous and sore has passed its way, and that there was opportunity for her to return. For after all, her other family, of course, was still in that area. That left a great decision, of course, for the other two women. What were Orpah and Ruth to do? Naomi insisted that they remain. She, in fact, told them, there are no more males in my womb, if you please. I'm too old. For, of course, in that day, following the pattern of Deuteronomy 25, that matter of leveret marriage, had another son been born to Naomi, then that son would have been given to one or the other of those women. However, Naomi insisted, go back to your father's house and find you husbands who can care and tend for you. The women began the journey with Naomi back. However, again, Naomi insisted, Find you husbands, must stay here in Moab. The text says that Orpah kissed her mother. She returned to her father's house, it would seem. However, notice what is stated near the close of verse 14 in such simple language. Ruth clave unto her. Ruth would not be dissuaded. She determined with great absolute character to return with her mother-in-law and back to Bethlehem she would go. And some of the most touching, some of the most enduring words of the book of Ruth are to be found in what Ruth said to her mother-in-law. Entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people and thy God my God. And where thou diest, will I die. And there will I be buried. And may the Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death, part thee and me. That text of verses 16 and 17 sets before us in many ways what almost could be a touching tear that would flow from our eye as we hear the sentiment and the lovely union that was now joined between these two and the great feelings that, that Ruth had for her mother-in-law. Might I ask you to notice as that chapter closes, they did make their way back to Bethlehem. 
and many of those acquaintances and family members recognized, of course, Naomi, but didn't recognize Ruth, we can appreciate that that leads us into chapter 2. In that chapter, we find that Ruth begins a process of helping to provide, and it becomes her lot to glean in the field of a gentleman named Boaz. She did not particularly select by a priori knowledge that place. It says her help was to glean in that field, and Boaz takes notice of Ruth. Here comes an interesting love story, isn't it? As Ruth, as Boaz takes notice of her, he even gives his reapers instructions, you leave plenty for Ruth. He is aware of how she has taken the liberty to care for her mother-in-law. He seems impressed by that, and even at mealtimes, he shows particular attention to Ruth. He even encourages her to glean nowhere else except in my fields. As we appreciate how that chapter proceeds, by the end of the day, Ruth is able to proceed back to her mother-in-law, and she has a great deal, of course, of grain that she has been able to acquire. When Naomi learns in whose field she has gleaned, she knows Boaz well. He is a near kinsman, and she tells that information to Ruth. And she, in fact, encourages her, let you not be found to glean anywhere but in his fields. Ruth listens well. And in chapter 3, she, in fact, follows her mother-in-law's advice ever so carefully. For her mother-in-law, in knowing that Boaz is a near kinsman, understands well that, under the God's law, as revealed in the book of Deuteronomy, the kinsman's role was in need of being played. And the advice, the counsel that Naomi gives is certainly ever so moving. She, in fact, says at the close of the harvest day, when they're threshing forth the barley that has been uh, acquired, you go into the threshing floor, and you mark well where Boaz is, and you reside at his feet. And when he wakes up, these are the things you say to him. Notice with me, if you would, simply what Ruth declares. Verse 5 of chapter 3, she simply says, All that thou sayest unto me I will do. She, in fact, did that night, and she, in fact, made notice to him of her desire for him to play the role of the kinsman. And when he wakes up and finds this lady at his feet, he promises, in fact, to follow through. But there is one problem that must first be dealt with. There is a kinsman nearer than I, he says. He gives her, as the morning light seems to dawn, the character of an additional amount of barley. And he says, we will take care of this matter with the other kinsmen at the gate of the city. And as chapter 4 opens, that's where he finds himself. And as this nearer kinsman passes as the gate of the city, a conversation ensues, and the very matter is brought forward. In fact, Boaz makes note of him that Naomi has field, uh, land to be purchased, but with it comes Ruth the Moabitess. This nearer kinsman refuses to take his part. He says, I cannot redeem it. At that point, Boaz purchases that right, and that transaction is completed. And as the chapter closes, it ends so happily. For in fact, Ruth and Boaz are married, and in fact, she conceives and bears a son whose name is Obed, who in fact will be the very grandfather. We notice that Obed's son was Jesse, and Jesse's son was David. This very man, you see, was in the very line of that one who would be King David. And as we read in Matthew 2, also in the line of the very Son of God when he was born in Matthew as well as in the book of Luke. 
those matters remind us of the greatness then of the things set before us in this book and the providential workings and wonder of the God of heaven. But as we've overviewed those matters, might I ask you to use them to look more carefully at what was said in chapter 1 verse 20. That particular verse read as follows. And she said unto them, this is Naomi's statement to the people of Bethlehem when she and Ruth had returned to that place. And she said unto them, Call me not Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. Again, the title of the lesson that I selected was How Mara Was Not Mara. And now we see the placement and the, the manner in which the word Mara appears. Naomi said, Call me not Mara. What does Mara mean? Perhaps the very verse gives us a strong indication. Because she said, For the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. The word Mara, as you can see, merely means bitter. She was in fact encouraging them, Call me in essence bitter, because the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. She noted in the very context in verse 21 that to which she referred. She made note of how her husband Elimelech had passed away. Her sons Malin and Kylian had also passed away. Things have not gone well with me since I left Bethlehem. Things have been grievous and rather bitter from the perspective of this life for me. You might easily appreciate the calamity that had been hers, the difficulty that had now encumbered her way. Many of us can also well attest to the difficulty of the loss of a loved one, the difficulty and sorrow that may well accompany that event, the feeling of lostness that goes along with it. Mara, recognizing the word bitter, noticed she had lost her husband and her two sons. Certainly the difficulty must have been great in her mind, and it was that basis that challenged her to use this very expression, Call me not Naomi. Call me rather Mara. Having said that though, I would ask you to ponder with me, how does Naomi present herself in this book? And how does the Holy Spirit describe her in this inspired writing? It will be that that will challenge us of the remainder of the lesson tonight. And might I also suspect might be a challenge to all of us as to how we might productively live our lives to the glory of God. Notice the calamities that had surrounded Naomi. How did she react in response to those calamities? May I submit to you several things might be worthy of note. The first one, while she was in that land of Moab, a land known for its idolatry, a land not known for its response and subservience to the God of heaven, a land in fact known for worshiping various and sundry idols that are named on many occasions in the Old Testament. Notice that she never lost her fortitude and her faith in the God of heaven. In that statement, she said, the Almighty. She knew who the Great One was. It was not the gods of the Moabites like Molech and others that Micah and Amos, the prophets, later will mention. She understood well and had never lost her fortitude and faith and allegiance and loyalty to the great God of heaven. That alone is worthy of our remark, and it's worthy of how the book of Ruth describes her. Consider with me just a few of these things. Sometimes in the great tragedies of life, the loss of a loved one or of a child, and remember, she lost two children and a husband. 
Sometimes those are the times when a person can break, when that person can crack. Perhaps the faith that has been the fortitude for many years is suddenly relinquished. How could God let this happen to me? Surely there can't be a God if He allowed this to become my lot. We have not the slightest inclination that Naomi ever responded in that way. We have not the slightest indication that she ever questioned God's existence. She ever questioned the fact of not only His existence, but He, in fact, is aware of what occurs in the human family, and He loves her. She seemed to know that well. In fact, did you notice as she made response to both Orpah and to Ruth that her very character was lifted rather highly by the statements that she made? In addition to those thoughts, might we ask, do not you and I fit into the same category, or in fact we should? In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, listen to this challenge presented to all of us today. Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Even when harder times come, even when those times more challenging comes to be our lot, we too should never lose sight of the great journey and its end before us. The fact that Satan will try his best to make things challenging and difficult, and he would like nothing better than for us to lose our faith and collapse beneath the load of what is brought about us. But just like Naomi, we should remain steadfast and true in ever understanding that there is a loving, almighty, awesome God of heaven, who not only is aware of you and me, but in great love desires the best for us. After all, she did return to Bethlehem. God's people dwelt there, not in Moab. And it was back to that place that she seemed with excitement to go, recognizing that God had allowed the famine to end. And in the blessing of that people, she was also anxious to participate, again, with the goodness of God's people there. In 2 Peter 1, verse number 10, we also notice that in the opening chapter of that book of 2 Peter, we are therein told, make diligence to make your calling and election sure. Did you notice the word diligence? You see, there is to be noted, we ought to so conduct ourselves, despite hardship and despite oppression and the difficulties that may come our way, make your calling and your election sure. That is a daily and constant challenge for each of us, isn't it? In the midst of a world that seems to present so much ungodliness and so much hatred and so much livelihood that is separate and apart from the will of God, nonetheless we must remain focused upon that which has been God's revelation, the truth that it is, and to ever live in compliance with it, understanding that even if difficulties come, God has promised great reward for those faithful to Him. Naomi seemed to understand that fact. Are we beginning to notice and to see that though she said, Call me not Naomi, call me Mara, her disposition seemed to speak of great beauty from a spiritual standpoint. Perhaps it would be well to notice yet another lesson. In addition to this one, that she didn't succumb to the idolatry of that land. Notice perhaps much to the positive how that in fact she exemplified incredible trueness to the God of heaven. We made note in Ruth 1 verse 16 about her mentioning the Almighty. And you might notice in that very passage, it would seem to be significant to what Ruth said. 
Did you notice again, as verse 16 closes, she said, Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. It would seem that in the years that Naomi had been known by Ruth, that Ruth saw in her an allegiance, not to any Moabite God, to the God of heaven, because notice she said, Thy God, the God, Naomi, that you worship and that you serve and that brings you joy and hope and excitement and promise, that God will be my God too. And those people who are those chosen special people, those Hebrew people, they will become my people. Ruth, it seems, could clearly see a difference in what she saw in her mother-in-law in terms of people and in terms of God than what she saw amongst any other people. That challenges us again, doesn't it, to appreciate where do you and I stand in light of thoughts like that? When others see me and when they see you, do they see an individual who is far removed from that which they so often see, perhaps in the way the world lives, but even in the rather corrupted way of religion these days, when denominationalism and other things present what so often is far removed from the truth of God, being based on human creeds, human thought, human philosophy, and to see a person who stands four square upon the truth of God, no more or no less, that, of course, will look distinct. It'll look different. It will stand out, and not in a bad way, but in a way that draws the glory and the honor to the God who makes it possible. It would seem that Ruth recognized that in her mother-in-law. Might we understand and appreciate passages that challenge us in that same regard today? In 2 Timothy 1 verse 5, what could be said of the heritage of Timothy? His grandmother, Lois, his mother, Eunice, who had bequeathed unto him an unfeigned faith. That means genuine, real, not pretense and not hypocritical. What about your faith and mine? Are we bequeathing that to those whom we know, including our children, including our family and our acquaintances? Do they see in us the genuine article of faith? It would seem again Ruth saw it in her mother-in-law. Though she said, call me not Naomi, call me Mara, she nonetheless had some wonderful characteristics to challenge even you and me still to, till this day. Might we also appreciate, in light of that same statement, perhaps a third lesson. It's about the middle of that slide. Might I ask you to notice again, she'd lost her husband. She was now far removed from the place that was so familiar to her, namely she was now in Moab. She'd lost her two sons. Would it not have been easy, it would seem, for her to become bitter toward life, to proceed around with a great frown, to in fact be that person who ex seemed to have a livelihood that was always less than joyful? always rather hard and bitter and unfriendly to everyone else? Have you known people like that today who seem to be bitter toward everybody and everything? The world is against me. No, things never go my way. Why does it happen like this? It would seem that it might have been easy for Naomi to have become that way. Might I ask, in your remembrance of the book of Ruth, do you remember any indication that she was actually that way? Consider with me a few of the verses that seem to indicate otherwise. In Ruth 1, verses 8 and following, 
when she had discussion with Orpah and with Ruth about encouraging them to leave, not one time did she blame God or state things to the effect of, woe is me, look at what has happened to me. She seemed far more interested in their well-being. You need husbands. Go back to your father's house, and that shall be able to come your way and to become that which is your life. She seemed far from selfish. She seemed to have far more concern for their well-being and their livelihood and how they would be able to maneuver through life and what would be the best for them. That's just the opposite of a person who is inwardly bitter and who is always so concerned about woe is unto me and why has this happened to me? Notice also in Ruth chapter 2 verse 22. On this occasion when Ruth returned from gleaning in the field of Boaz, what did Naomi say unto her? It is good, my daughter, that thou go out with his maidens, that they meet thee not in any other field. In terms of gleaning, she gave great advice and great wisdom, not intending to disadvantage Ruth or to that which would make it more difficult for her or that which would in fact cause her to be unwelcomed in that vicinity. After all, Ruth didn't know anything about the area of Bethlehem until she came there with her mother-in-law and yet Naomi strove with all the energy within her, it would seem, to help her fit in and to become a part of that special people that she desired to be a part of. Later we also notice in Ruth 3, verses 1 and following, that advice that she gave relative to capturing Boaz's attention, and later in chapter 4, verses 14 and following, the very special dialogue that took place between Naomi's friends and her, not the slightest indication of bitterness to be found within her. That led me to choose the title I did, How Mara Was Not Mara. Though she encouraged others to reflect upon her and call her that which would mean bitter, she never seemed to exemplify that bitterness in her life at all. She rather took the difficulties presented to her and made the best of them by virtue of the power, prestige, and providence of the God of heaven. And mine, I submit, you and I could do no better. We too, when the hardships come, ought to see the golden thread of God's love, mercy, and grace through it and to appreciate that God will never allow us anything that is too strong for us through Him to overcome. 1 Corinthians again, chapter 10, verse 13. As Naomi understood and made use of those facts, that brings us to some of the closing thoughts that challenge us today with that same issue. As Christians, where do you and I stand in those matters? Though those difficulties certainly will come our way, because didn't Paul say in 2 Timothy 3 verse 12, all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It is thus a certainty. It shall come in a variety of ways, Depending on the person, for Satan will work things so that it will challenge us in the way that would be more likely for us to succumb. It may be the insults of those who we thought were our dearest friends. It may well be that those who we thought we could count on through anything will become our mortal enemy. It may well be that the one who we love so dear forsakes us. It may be those who we thought would never fail us turn against us. It may well be difficulties in life meaning we're disadvantaged because others are chosen above us because we won't succumb to what they're willing to do. 
all of that may well become our lot. And yet, like Naomi, we should not allow it to cause us to be bitter in, in life. We should al allow God to work through us and appreciate how Mara need not become Mara. It didn't in Naomi's life. In Ephesians 4.31, we notice that Paul, through inspiration, told the Ephesians to put away things like malice and anger, as we noted this morning. And in addition, matters like evil speaking and those other issues that would tend to make you bitter. God desires us to be joyful. Of any and all people on earth, the Christian has right to be joyful. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. That text of Philippians 4 verse 4 was written by a man who was in a prison. A prison, no less. And certainly it was not the friendly, peaceful, very well-to-do confines of a common prison today. Those Roman prisons were no lap of luxury. And yet, as the Apostle Paul penned and gave that to be written, here he said, rejoice, always. And again, I say rejoice. Paul, how and why could you rejoice? Aren't you in prison? Aren't you suffering? Aren't you in hardship? Aren't you being oppressed? Are you not in a position where perhaps you may not live to see the morning? Paul said, rejoice, brethren. I'm telling you, rejoice. Because, after all, are we not aware of the fact in chapter 3, verse 14 of the same book, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Last chapter of the same book, chapter 4, verse 13, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Chapter 4, verse 19, My God shall supply all your needs. God didn't promise to supply our wants, but He did promise to supply our needs. And Paul said, Brethren, can we not rejoice? For you and I have the promise if we live faithfully till death of a home in heaven. And through the character of this life, we have the Son of God at our side, aiding us with support, encouraging us with life. You and I today still stand in that same position. Naomi, call me not. Naomi, she said, call me Mara. But I think tonight we've learned that despite what she said, there are many things about her life that she didn't live by virtue of that bitterness she was able to rise above it and to live in a way that was a great help and encouragement to many others about her. Tonight, can you and I not perhaps do the same? For as we're told in Galatians 5, verse 22, joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit. We should thus seek each day to bring forth more fruit in that regard and more fruit with that joy. You might also notice in Romans 14, 17, as well as in Psalm 16, 11, in Psalm 32, 11, we read on those occasions about the encouragement to be joyful as David was in those latter two passages. Today, are you joyful? Are you lovingly living a life for the Savior? He died for you, shed His blood for you, and He paid the way that you might become a member of His body and in that purchasing of that church to have a way, a channel to lead to everlasting life. Oh, how thankful we should be, certainly not a person of bitterness toward what has been done for us. Call me not Mara. As you and I perhaps close our lesson tonight thinking about that, though difficulties may come, hardships in that regard, let, us, let it not make us to live in a way responsive to the bitterness by being bitter. As you see those concluding thoughts, might I ask each of us to examine ourselves whether we be in the faith and to ask, how are you exemplifying your Christianity to others? 
Do others see always a very sad, forlorn frown? Can they perhaps wonder what joy is there in his or her life for Christ? Or do they see a bubbling spirit, a spirit recognizing the hope that's yours, the promise and reward that God has made available to you, and the grand reward that awaits those who live faithfully toward that goal? Tonight, if you need to perhaps change a disposition, to change an attitude that has been so forlorn into one that's happier, that may well indeed re result in two, two points or two questions. If you've never become a Christian, you need the Savior to assist you in that regard. You can't do it by yourself. You can't make it to heaven without Him. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me, verse 6 of John 14. Tonight, if you thus need to respond in faith, you need to believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Repent of your sins, confess His name audibly as the Son of God, and be baptized for the forgiveness of sin. Upon so doing, you will be added to the church. And in that way, you could proceed to walk joyfully, masterfully through this life, holding graspingly tightly to the hand of Jesus. If you have begun that walk but are no longer true to it, you have forgotten really what it meant. The whole notion and the idea of Christianity now seems a distant past memory. Perhaps you need to reinvigorate that life by allowing Christ to again fill you with the joy spoken of in Romans 14, 17. If tonight we can pray for forgiveness of public sin, if we could in fact assist in that regard to pray for greater strength, we'd be happy to do it. If in either of those ways we could be of assistance tonight, wouldn't you let that be known while together we stand and while we sing?